0: Amen. Grace and peace be with you, church. You all may be seated. Uh, This morning we have a guest uh, speaker, um, a dear friend, uh, Nick Bogardas. He is a pastor of Cross of Christ Church in Orange County, and he will be blessing us with the word today. Um, Cross of Christ is a sister church through the Soldier Network Um, Church. Why don't we give a warm welcome to Nick? Good morning, you guys. Um, Hey, I just want to start by saying how much um, I love your church. Um, This is the fourth time I've been out here, um, and I got to bring our worship director. I brought my wife before, um, and it's been awesome to be here over four years and see different phases of the church, different phases of the life of the church. And I've come to love this place. I've come to love Kona. I've come to love Shorebreak. And uh, there's just kind of two things that always... um, that I feel about this place. And the the first is just how desperately Conan needs more gospel-centered, gospel-preaching churches. And I love that you guys are here doing that. And then secondly, just it's been great to see God work through different seasons of the church. And it's evident every time I come out that God's at work. And so I just want to say that from the beginning, that that we love you. My wife and I pray for you guys constantly. And um, we're thankful to be partners with you guys in the gospel in California and Hawaii. Um, So can you guys take a risk with me this morning? Um, Will you guys read Scripture with me? I know you guys don't typically do that. Um, Something we do as a church is we read together um, the Scripture that I'll be preaching from. And we do that for a couple reasons. One, we believe God's Word is powerful, active, living, uh, effective. And so uh, we want, as a church, to simply read it together. Secondly, uh, as a pastor, uh, I'm under no delusion that there are uh, people who come into church on Sunday just having not even read the Bible this week. And so if we as a church are reading it, there is one time where they are going to read Scripture uh, together with the body. So would you guys please stand? Um, and we will read um, a good amount of Scripture together. We're going to be reading from Genesis and Revelation, and I will, I'll guide you through it, and would you would just please uh, read aloud with me. So from the very beginning of creation, um, we'll read Genesis 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Now from the middle of the creation story, we read Genesis 1, 20-22. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. Now from God's creation of mankind, we read Genesis 1, 26, and two eighteen through 19 And then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, and every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And now, from John's vision of the new creation, we read Revelation 21, 4-8, and verse 15. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. And neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. As for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Please pray with me. Oh Father, we uh, we thank you for being a God who uh, has power over everything that you have made. God, we thank you that you have used that power to rescue. You have used that power to enliven. Father, I thank you that you've used this power to love and bless Shorebreak Church. Father, as we look at your story this morning, from the beginning and the end, uh, would you give us a, a glimpse, an awareness of, uh, an awe of your power? And uh, Would you also help us to feel that you are near? In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, you, you may be seated. Okay, so... Um, It's probably not often that you read from Genesis and Revelation uh, before a sermon. Let me tell you a few reasons why uh, we're reading from these passages. Uh, The first is uh, we believe that everyone lives on the basis of some story. Everyone everyone lives on the basis of some story that is telling them where they came from and where they're going. And on the basis of that story, they live in between the beginning and the end. So uh, maybe for you, uh, like for me, my, my mom's side of the family is Cuban and so part of my story has been being raised by an immigrant family that came over from Cuba to America during World War II, uh, who built a family in the Midwest and the East Coast, and I'm simply a a grandchild of a a man who came over and made his way uh, in America, and that's been part of my story. Maybe some of your story is some um, ethnic background, uh, maybe some family history that you've inherited, and that's become your story. Uh, Maybe for you, it's Um, you know, making a new life here in in Hawaii. You've moved over from the mainland and you wanted to start over and you wanted to kind of tweak, rewrite, change your story. Maybe for you, uh, it could be your vocation that that what defines you and where you place yourself most primarily is within the story of your vocation. And so what it means to be, uh, you know, Dave or Ann or whatever your name is, is to be the person who works in this place, who has made their way through the vocation and who has a a great uh, career path ahead of them. Maybe it's a political party right, in our country right now. That seems to be one of the primary stories people are finding themselves in, whether it's the right or the left. Uh, They place themselves uh, on the right side of history, whatever they determine that to be, but that's a story. It gives them a a history of where they came from, uh, a, a trajectory of where they're going, and it helps them live in the time between. But we as Christians believe that God has the ultimate story and that His story overrides our own story and every other lesser story, and we are to primarily find ourselves within His story. And so when you look at Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22, what you actually will see are so many similar themes uh, in the beginning and the end. And so my hope is as we look at the theme of power, uh, you might look at how God has used His power in the beginning and at the end, and might help us shape how we use power in our life in between. I also want you to see um, one reason we do that is we believe that the Bible um, is ultimately not about you and the Bible ultimately helps you live in the time in between. We believe it was written by uh, God through man in a particular time, in a particular place. And so Genesis that we read was written by Moses as the Israelites were about to enter the Promised Land. they have been wandering for 40 years. They'd been delivered from slavery. And Moses sits down to write... Uh, the Pentateuch, and he writes the creation story with a particular intent. And he wants them to remember who God is and what he's done in the beginning and how they live in the time in between. Likewise, Revelation, written probably 1,400 years later by John, about 30 to 40 years after the death of Christ. And he's writing that to Christians who are being dispersed from their homes, persecuted, oppressed. And he's writing about the end of all things in order to give them a glimpse of what they are experiencing right now is not the ultimate What they're experiencing right now actually will lead to something greater and better. He has an an agenda in what he's writing. He has an intent. And so God's Word also helps us uh, through the writers of God's Word and through God's intent through them to live in the time in between. So what we're talking about this morning, what I want you to see, is that the way that God has used and will use His power, the way that God has used and will use His power directs how we use ours. Now, I noticed on the table out there you guys have the book TechWise Family. Have any of you guys read that? Okay, so yeah. buy some of those on your way out because they're great. Um, so that guy, Andy Crouch, who wrote that book, which is a tremendous book, um, even if you're not parents, you don't, have a, you don't yet have started a, a biological family, it's a great book for helping you think through uh, the implications of technology on our lives. But he also wrote this amazing book called Playing God that's on power. And it's one of my favorite books. I'm drawing a lot of this from that. So I just want to give him credit where credit's due. But if you liked TechWise Family, you should check out his book on power. He also wrote a book called Strong and Weak, which is uh, kind of a a, a summary of the bigger book on power. But anyway, I just want to give him credit where where credit's due. Now when it comes to power, I want to start with two things. One, if you don't consider the topic of power, if you don't, um, if you miss, the significance of power, if you remove power from the equation, then you will have a very limited understanding of the cross and the resurrection. If you don't consider how God has used his power, if you don't consider the topic of power, you have a very compartmentalized, limited understanding of the cross and the resurrection, which you may be prone to do, especially in our kind of more reformed tribe, is to view the cross and the resurrection transactionally, that there was a debt that needed to be paid and so Jesus died to cancel that out and give you his righteousness. That's all absolutely true. But you will miss the layer of how that, was, how that happened. How did God perform that uh, work? How did he perform that transaction? It's not merely a, a reckoning of logs, but there's much more at work uh, that, that comes out of who God is and how he works. And so if you remove the topic of power, you will have a very kind of truncated transactional view of the cross and the resurrection. And you'll view the cross and the resurrection in a compartmentalized way, instead of seeing it as the most potent instance of how God used His power in the beginning and the end. You will miss that it's the ultimate expression of God's power at the cross and the resurrection. If you guys have the uh, Jesus Storybook Bible, you guys have that one. you parents, right? You guys remember the story where Jesus feeds the five thousand? And uh, Sally Lloyd Jones, the author, um, she describes it like this. That it was the most natural thing in the world. It's what God had been doing from the beginning, of course. Taking the nothing and making it everything. Taking the emptiness and filling it up. Taking the darkness and making it light. If you remove power from the equation, you have a very limited, truncated view of the cross and the resurrection and the gospel and what God is is really doing there. And secondly, um, and I'm going to show you this at the end of the sermon. Uh, I want to preface that. uh, There's something coming there. Um, but also, secondly, we have a problem with power. We, Our culture has a problem with power for two reasons. One, we associate it mostly with its distortions. And two, we don't have a good definition of it. So what is it that you think of when you think of power? When you think of power, what is it that you think of? Because my guess is you probably think of corrupt businessmen. You can probably think of uh, crooked politicians. You probably think of abusive husbands. You probably think of uh, tyrannical, uh, unstable bosses. You probably think of distortions of power before you think of appropriate, good uses of power. And so one of our first problems is that we, just, we only think of the distortions of power, and when we don't have an accurate, good definition of it, we end up not knowing what it is, how it is best used. Power ends up being... Um, Power that is assumed or undefined or not discussed will largely always be distorted, abused, or not used to its full potential. Power is kind of like electricity. Um, Electricity can be very helpful, right, when channeled appropriately and used correctly. It can power your home. It can do any number of things. But also, electricity can also be very lethal, right? Right? Uh, Electricity has a good and intended use and purpose, but when distorted, can be incredibly harmful. Power is very similar. We need to look at it as something that is incredibly um, uh, powerful and can be used appropriately or inappropriately. And as Christians, we want to think rightly about that. How do we use it appropriately? And we'll see as we dig into Genesis and Revelation, we get that definition from how God uses His. So Christians should notice that power, both good and bad, is throughout Scripture. From Genesis to Exodus, to Jesus' cross and his empty tomb, to the restoration of all things in Revelation, power is throughout Scripture. The uh, the questions then are, what is power? How does God use his, and how do we use ours in light of that? So let's start with Genesis 1. Because the way that God has used and will use his power directs how we use ours. Genesis 1, 1-3. At the very beginning, uh, verses you guys are probably very familiar with. In the very beginning, God did what? Created. the very beginning, God created. God starts with nothing. God begins to create with absolutely nothing in existence, and by the work of His power, He brings about all that has ever existed or will exist in the cosmos. The language there in Genesis talks about the uh, that the earth was without form and void. It was chaos. It was darkness. There was there was, uh, there was nothingness. There was absolutely nothing good there. And yet God uses his power to create. And this first instance of this first action of God that God creates, this first action is the very thing that helps us see how God uses his power. God uses his power in a way that is creative. You could call it creative power. Might be the best way to think about how to use power appropriately. Creative. Power, that he uses his power to bring about life and flourishing. He always uses power to bring about life and flourishing. And power is the ability to make something of the world. If you're, if you're kind of thinking, like, what, what is power? Um, electricity doesn't really do it justice, but what is it? Power is the ability to make something of the world, to make uh, from the raw materials of life something, and in particular to be able to make meaning. So it could be to uh, the power to create. Music from an instrument. It could be the power to create wine from grapes. It could be the power to create uh, lessons for students from raw course material. It's the ability to take raw material and create things, to make something of life. Um, And it's also the power, even more potently, to create meaning in our life. And God uses his power creatively. Think about other instances of God's creative power. In the Exodus, when he uses his power to free his people from slavery, he parts waters, he brings plagues. He uses power in order to bring about life for his people. Think about when they're in the wilderness. How does God provide for them? He provides bread and manna. Think about uh, bread and quail. Think about um, how after the wilderness, um, uh, he, he provides for his people uh, through, he provides for his prophets through sparrows and, and uh, through crows who bring food. Think about Jesus' miracles, that Jesus uses his power to heal. He uses his power to restore sight. He uses his power to raise the dead. When God uses his power, he always uses his power in a way that is creative. It's creative power. It's not destructive power. Again, back to our, our distortions of it. God doesn't use his power only to destroy. He doesn't use his power uh, with, uh, with mere and empty violence or coercion. Or um, it's, not also not, it's not self-concerned. It is a power that is intended to bring about life and flourishing for, for others. And so when you see God's creative power contrasted with the way that we often, uh, humans often use their power, um, you can start to see a good definition of it, that God's power is creative. But there's a second element of God's power that we see in, in, later in Genesis 1 that we read together, that when God makes things, when he uses creative power, God's creative power multiplies. When he makes creation, he doesn't stop with one cow or one bird or one insect. He actually says, no, let them swarm. Let the fishes swarm in the seas. Let the birds swarm in the airs." God's power is intended to multiply. His his power is meant to bring about uh, fruitful flourishing and multiplication through every living creature. His power always bears fruit beyond an initial instance. Think about God's other instances of of God's multiplying power. Jesus' wine, uh, his miracle of wine at the wedding of Cana. Think about his feeding miracles where he takes a little boy's lunchbox and turns it into a meal for thousands of people. God's power always multiplies. Think about Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes. He lands on the disciples in the early church and it just explodes out from Jerusalem. When God uses his power, it multiplies. In God's economy, Power is not a zero-sum game. God's power is not a zero-sum game. So one of the distortions we have in our culture right now that you are given is that power is a zero-sum game. That the left and the right say, well, if the other side has the power, that means we don't have it and we want what they have. That uh, if, if, if you have something that I don't, that means I'm lacking and I want what you have. The power is always a zero-sum game. It becomes... Uh, who has it and who doesn't. What we can accumulate, what we can hoard, what we can use to advance our own agendas, it's, it's ultimately a zero-sum game. So on the right, it might look like unbridled capitalism that we can just simply uh, expand business without any kind of concern for the implications on um, uh, those who are negatively affected by it or the possible consequences of it. We can just say, look, just, it's a zero-sum game. We should accumulate all the money, all the capital, all the resources we possibly can because that's just what capitalism does. And that's unchecked, unbridled capitalism. That is a zero sum game, ultimately. It's not a multiplying power. Or on the left, you might see like overreaching socialism, which is just the script of, well, we need to control everything. And so uh, make sure that we can uh, regulate uh, through the government, uh, you know, taxes and food and how people behave and so on and so forth. It's a zero sum game of power. Instead, God's creative power multiplies. Maybe one more distortion um, that comes to mind is uh, as a pastor and much of the marriage counseling I do, especially in the, in the early years, I don't know if you've thought about this, but most marriage arguments come down to power. <laughs> Whose way is going to have the last say, right? It becomes a zero-sum game of power. I need to win and you need to lose. I need to get my way and I need to just uh, you need to get in line. That's a distortion of power. That's not how God uses his power. God's creative power multiplies. So think about the best teachers you ever had. How many? Wait, actually, are there any teachers in this room? One, two, two teachers, three teachers. All right, great. So think about teachers. When you teach kids and you use your power, what you know about how to educate kids through different learning styles, through the subjects that you know really well, do you lose anything by teaching them? You don't lose anything. It's, it's not a zero-sum game. You are actually giving of yourself and the power that you have to kids who don't have it, to students who don't have what you have to offer, and you're not losing anything. That's like God's power. It's not zero-sum. So I think about the best teachers I had, and they always gave what they had for the good of their students. If you think about the best coaches you ever played for, I had the, the blessing to play for some amazing coaches, and they always existed to help their players play better than they could have without... The, the gifts and the talents that their coaches brought to the table. If You think about your friends and the friends that you love the most and bring the most life to, you, to your life. They don't use their power in a zero-sum way. They're not keeping score. They're not asking what you can do for them. They're actually using what they have to bless you and others in their life. That's how God uses His power. It multiplies. But God, God's creative power multiplies and God also gives that power to humanity. We read in Genesis 1.26 and 2.18-19. That God doesn't restrict that power to Himself, but He gives it to humanity. Power is a gift to both man and woman. So He says in Genesis 126, let let's make man in our own image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. And so, what God does is He makes man and woman, and He says, alright, now you rule. You represent Me to all of creation. What I've done now you do underneath me. You have power over creation, man and woman. You together are to exercise the power that you have in order to steward and care for and bring about, uh, with through your creative power, life on this planet. God gives his power to both man and woman to use their power creatively and for flourishing. So again, this uh, as Christians uh, throughout history, when we've really seen this accurately, we have held up the dignity and the honor and, the, and respected women because of stuff like this. The, the Christianity throughout the, the centuries and in places of the world where this isn't the case, you can see that when Christians see this rightly, God's gift of power to man and woman, that it is actually dignifying to women. It is, it is esteeming to them. It's not belittling that man and woman were intended to be uh, co-equal, uh, creative uh, Power distributors, like whatever, have dominion together over all of creation. And so you think about here: if this is how God has designed life to be, He's used His power creatively. His creative power multiplies. He gives it to man and woman to have dominion over creation. Uh, What does it mean to be powerless? Because you might think that powerless might be, well, I don't have, I don't have money, or I don't have a good job, and those are aspects of powerlessness. They are symptoms of powerlessness, but act, real powerlessness is the inversion of the definition of power we gave you before, which is the ability to make something of the world. Real powerlessness is the inability to make anything of the world. It is the inability to make stuff, to, make, uh, to, to give of yourself to anything, or to make meaning. And so you think about uh, human trafficking, you think about slavery, that's powerlessness. That's that's a good way to view that kind of horror in our life. Is that it is the absolute most violent, horrific distortion of God's creative power is to Im- impose this kind of powerlessness on people. So you see this in in, in oppression, in tyranny. You see this even in disabilities. Uh, people who are physically disabled, there is a sense of powerlessness. So they are limited in what they can make of this world. That's not how God intended life to be lived at the beginning. And you see this even ultimately in death something that we are absolutely powerless against, something in which our ultimate meaning apart from God is taken away. Our ability to make anything of this life apart from God is taken away. That's utter powerlessness. So Genesis 1 and 2, and looking at uh, God's power through this, why would Moses write this to people on the verge of coming in the Promised Land? Why would God want his people to know how he made everything, how he used his power as they're about to come into the promised land? Well, think about it. He would, he would want them to, one, remember that their slavery was a distortion. Like what you saw as the ultimate power at the time of Egypt, that wasn't, one, ultimate or two, appropriate. That what it was was actually an absolute horrific uh, distortion of the way that God would have power be used and it was ultimately a limited power because God vanquished it through his creative power with the plagues and so on and so forth. He's reminding his people that you are following the God who uses his creative power for your good and he's leading you into the land that he has promised to you. So there's there's an intent here that Moses has, that God has through Moses to remind his people of who he is as the God who uses creative power. So if that's the beginning of the story, of God's story, and how he uses power at the beginning. What about the end? Revelation 21, 4-8, and 15 that we read together. God's power restores and recreates. At the end of all things, God says, I'm going to wipe away every tear from every eye, and death shall be no more. And neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things that passed away. At the end of everything, God's power restores and recreates one distortion that a lot of Christians have is that the end of all things is a disembodied uh, cherub cloud uh, living existence in heaven. And that's not what you see in Revelation. In Revelation you see an embodied existence on a new heaven and a new earth that God uses his power at the end of all things to restore and recreate what sin has wrecked in his creation. God's power restores and recreates in the new heavens and the new earth and God will exercise his power at the end similar to how he did at the beginning, creatively. And God's power, as he restores and he rec- as he recreates, also upholds goodness by pushing back evil. Look at verses uh, 8 and 15, where he talks about, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and the liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and silver, which is the second death. Then in verse 15, outside of the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood, that God's power upholds goodness by pushing back evil. Part of God's creative power in bringing about flourishing is also to defend and protect his people from sin and evil. Part of his power is to uphold goodness by pushing back evil. And all of those behaviors, you can read that You can read those uh, those behaviors and simply think about the function of them and miss that actually beneath all of them is some kind of injustice and idolatry. And beneath all of those behaviors are misuses of power. Behind every single one of those behaviors is a misuse of power. Think about the cowardly, someone who doesn't use their power to stand up for something that they should. Someone who doesn't use their power to do the good that God would have them to do and instead actually passively just avoids it. Think about uh, the detestable, uh, someone who has lived a life with their power that's just so perverted and distorted that John would call them uh, detestable. Think about murderers who use their their power in ways that is violent and coercive. Think about the sexually immoral. Think about sexual sin that ultimately at the bottom of it, so much of it is a misuse of power, a desire to simply get your own pleasure and, and take it from someone else that beneath all of these behaviors is a distortion of power. And when God, at the end of all things, uses His creative power, He will uphold goodness through His creative power by pushing back evil and the distortions and misuses of power. And this is why it's so awful when churches abuse their power by covering up abuse, by having abusive leaders, by using their power to harm, because we should be the people that are reflecting the way that God uses His power that uses it creatively, that uses it to multiply, that uses it uh, to push back evil and darkness for the sake of goodness. The thing is, our post-Christian secular culture gives us a couple of scripts that don't hold up. They give you a couple scripts that do not hold up. They say that there may be a God. There might be a God out there, maybe, I don't know. But you should just keep them to yourself if there is. He might be out there, but don't talk about it in the public square. Don't talk about it with your friends and family. You should just be quiet about it. But if there is a God out there, if you would allow that there is a God out there, think about how arrogant it is to be like, he might be out there, he might have made everything, but just shut up about it. Like how arrogant is that for us to say, can you imagine that a God made all of this, but let's never talk about it. We talk about Netflix shows. We talk about the Grammys. We talk about meaningless things all the time, but you would have me be quiet about the God of the universe? That's a, that's a bizarre script to hand out, that there may be a God, but just keep him to yourself. Beneath that is just an, an unbelievable blinded arrogance. And why wouldn't you want to emulate the way that God, the God of the Bible has used his power? If there is a God out there, and if the God of the Bible is that God out there, then why wouldn't you want to look at that and be like, hey, He really there's something to how he used his power. Maybe we should think about how we use ours, because that looks really good. The second script is that there is no god, but we should stand up for justice. There's no god out there, but you know we should really try to right all the wrongs in the world around us. But absent of a god who uses his power creatively, why would we not just use our power as we see fit? Why would I not just use my power for my own ends? Why would it not just be survival of the fittest? I should just use power to get what I want, and you should just use your power to advance your own ends. To say that there is no God but stand up for justice it actually cuts out any kind of moral standing, any kind of moral ground you might have to make that claim. Why would we not use our power as pure evolution or materialism dictates? The strong should eat the weak, It's just how nature works. There's no God You can't tell me to stand up for the unjust. So why would John write this in Revelation 21 to the original audience who were experiencing suffering and hardship? Why would God God want them to know this? Because again, the empire is not ultimate. In the same way the Egyptians oppressed the ancient Israelites, the Romans who were oppressing the first Christians are not ultimate. He wants them to know that the power that is being abused against them is not ultimate and it's not the most powerful uh, thing in creation and it's an absolute distortion of how God would have People use their power. You don't have to play that game. If you look at the end of all things and the restoration of man, uh, the restoration of, of creation, you don't have to play the game that is zero sum. You can use your power creatively and counterculturally because God's power will have the last word. So I said at the beginning: if you remove, so we, we saw how God uses power at the beginning and how he uses it at the end, and how that can inform how we use our power in our life in between that we use it creatively, we use it to multiply, uh, we use it to push back darkness and chaos and evil and uphold goodness. But I also said at the very beginning, if you remove power from the equation, you get a very truncated, limited view of the gospel, right? I want to show you that from Ephesians 2, because I want you to see that God uses his power from beginning to end in this way. From Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, a passage you guys are familiar with. We'll just work through this together. If you have your Bible in front of you, feel free to flip there, otherwise it'll be on the screen behind me. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you who were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Do you see all the power language in there? You start to see now, actually, that we were dead because of how we used our power. That we were dead because of how we used our power. We were carrying out the desires and the passions of our flesh. That we were following the prince of the power of the air. That we were partnering with God's enemy and saying, Wow, the way that God uses this, God's enemy uses his power, I want to do that. And because of that, we were dead. We were absolutely powerless. And dead, the destructive ways that you used your power are causes of and symptoms of your own death. How much power does a corpse have? None. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were dead in our trespasses because of the way that we misused and distorted our power and harmed uh, people in our lives and offended God. We were dead and powerless because of how we used our power. But God's creative power made us alive and raised us up with him. Look at verse 5. And even when we were dead, even when we were dead, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That God's power made the dead alive. The same power that said, let there be light, is the same power that touched every single person's heart in this room who can claim Christ. Paul says in Corinthians that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that gives light and life to Christians. That God's creative power that birthed the cosmos is the creative power that raised Jesus from the dead and the creative power that enables you to cry out Jesus' name. God uses power creatively from beginning to end, whether he makes the cosmos or whether he makes dead hearts alive. God's creative power is, is at the heart of the gospel, the way that he uses it. And because it's God's creative power, it's not your doing, it's not your power that saved yourself, but it's God's accomplishment in gift in verses 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one will boast. Note how God uses his power to accomplish this, to overcome and push back the powers of sin and death and Satan. God's power is not shown in our definition of strength, but in an apparent weakness at the cross. Not in, not in what we would deem as wisdom, but we would deem as apparent foolishness. Not in status, but in, but in weakness. Not in demanding, but in giving. Not by saving his own life, by laying down his life. When you look at the cross, you see really the most potent expression of God's creative power. That it doesn't come uh, to domineer and coerce, but it actually comes in surrender and weakness in order to overcome the way that we dominate and accumulate and destroy. It's God's accomplishment, and because it's his power, he gets to give it freely. And this version of power that we see at the cross, that Jesus shows us and does for us, is the very thing that is a stumbling block for so many people. If you guys know uh, the conservative commentator uh, Ben Shapiro, uh, he's an Orthodox Jew. I was listening to him interview uh, another Jew, and they were talking about um, the Messiah and what they were waiting for. And they were talking about why they don't believe in Jesus. And they both said, we don't believe in Jesus because we believe that the Messiah is going to come as a conquering hero. I mean, they said this like two months ago. Like they're still waiting for this version of power. That God will come and conquer their their, their oppressors and secure their place in the Middle East. And that's going to be the Messiah. But that's not what God did when he showed his power at the cross and the resurrection. I also want you to see that as God does this, as He uses His power at the cross and in the resurrection, that He does it with love. And this combination of love and power is really important to see. Love works with power. Love without power is frustrated. Think about like, those of you who have family members who are chronically ill. Think about those of you who have watched family members die and the powerlessness that you feel as you watch them struggle. And you feel that love for them. You go, I would give anything to help them out. Love without power is frustrated. But power without love is abusive. Love has to have power to be effective. It has to work in conjunction with power to be effective. But power without love is cruel and oppressive. Those two things always have to work together, and that's how God uses power creatively, with love and power. And God's plan for you is to use your redeemed, your, your redeemed creative power for good works in verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What are the good works but you using the redeemed power that God has given you for the good of others? It's not just the behavior that you're going to think like the the behavior uh, that God would expect, but it's the power that you have to to do the behavior for the good of other people. God has redeemed our view of power and we're supposed to use the power that he's given every single one of us for the good works he's prepared for us in advance to do. Power is throughout Scripture from beginning to end. And we have distortions of power. We have assumed power. We need to see how does God use his power so it can inform how we use ours in the life in between. Let me give you a few things to consider by way of application. One, you have more power than you think. You have more power than you think. Everybody in this room, because you're here freely, you live in the time and place in which you live, you have the, some means by which uh, you can make a living. You have more power than you can live. And so in your workplace, you can think about how do I use my power to create and to build, not to merely climb a ladder? How can I use my power to, uh, uh, to bless the other people who I work with, to train them, to teach them, to help them at their jobs and not merely just do my own silo and think about what I need to accomplish and not actually what might be good for the others around me? The distortions of work in the workplace might be tyrants, uh, tyrannical bosses uh, who have completely exaggerated expectations, or uh, workaholics who simply use their power to just constantly churn and not rest. Alongside the power, think about marriage. Think about how you use your power for one another. Again, God anchors his uh, the gospel centrality of marriage in the cross. That husbands are to die to yourself, for your wife, and the wife is supposed to submit to her husband. We're supposed to lay down our lives, lay down our power, men, for the good of our wives, and ladies, you're supposed to lay down your power for the good of your husband. That there is this mutual giving of power that is intended to love and bless one another, mutual dying and submission to bless the other. And there's also another part of uh, marriage in terms of power, is like procreation. What do we do when we make babies, but we make life creatively? The way God makes life. Also, parenting. Parenting is power. If you haven't connected those dots yet, parents, that you are giving of yourself for the good of your children. You are giving what you know, what you believe, uh, to, to teach them and train them up in the way that they should go. And that is a giving of yourself and the power that you have for the good of others. And so with our kids, when we teach them about power, like, so we have, we have two girls and a boy. And the boy is a tank. His name's Titus. His name's Titus Bogartis, which is like the perfect name for a fullback, right? Like, uh... Two-Yard Game by Titus Bogartis, right? Uh, and he, he is just a beast of a kid. And I know some of you guys have boys like this. And so we constantly have to teach him how to use his hands. And so my wife and I were like, okay, well, I don't always want to tell this kid no. So how do we teach him what's an appropriate use of power as a young man so that when he grows up, he knows how to use his hands, his body, the power he has as a man for the good of other people? So we teach him, Titus, what do you have? why, why, do you, why did God give you hands? God gave me hands to love and serve and protect and provide. And he knows, so when he's he's harming, when he's taking, when he's destroying, when he's hitting, when he's doing any of those things that's not in the design that God had for him to use his power to love his sisters and other kids he plays with. And so, parents, you get to teach your kids, and especially your young men, how to use their power appropriately. With our girls, we do that with their words. Your words have power. How do you use your words to uh, love and bless other people? Use your words to encourage, to build, to love. And so we try to teach them how to use the power that they have. At seven and eight, they have power. You guys know the little kids can just be the cruelest little people on the planet. And they have power in their words. And we want to teach them how to use that power appropriately. So the way that God has used and will use His power directs how we use ours. And His creative power brings life, multiplies, restores and recreates, pushes back darkness and ultimately died and rose to give you new life. To give you new life in this life and the next. And God hasn't just loved you abstractly. He hasn't just loved you transactionally. His love is cross-shaped. And He hasn't just loved you passively. He has loved you powerfully. Please pray with me. God, we thank you for the reminder that you are a God who hasn't just stepped back from what you've made like the God of deism, but instead you have moved towards your creation, interacted with your creation to give life to dead hearts, to provide and sustain. Father, I thank you that you have loved and protected this church. I thank you for the ways that you have sustained and brought life in this church. God, I thank you for the people in this church who are using their power to love and serve this body and reflecting you as they do so. Father, would you continue to bring life as this body of believers here in Kona reflects your creative power in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.